This is Esculapius, a podcast that uncovers the human side of our healthcare professionals. I'm your host, John Neary. Today, my guest is Mavis Seahouse. Mavis is the Director of Ambulatory Care Social Work at the Hospital for Special Surgery in New York City. She previously has worked in social work and mental health at Mount Sinai Health System and earned a MSW from Hunter College. Mavis, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm actually reading uh, a really interesting book right now that you might be familiar with. It's called The Healing of America uh, by T.R. Reid. I think he's a New York Times uh, columnist. Hmm. And basically, the whole um, preface of, of the book is that he, he's having some shoulder problems. And so he goes to um, different nations throughout the world and kind of interacts with their healthcare system to try and seek out care for his shoulder. Um, and so, as you know, this is probably it's, it's a way of kind of just comparing the U.S. healthcare system to, to ways uh, insurance and and so forth is done uh, worldwide. Um, but he kind of says at the beginning of the book, you know, when you're looking at setting up a healthcare system, like the fundamental question you need to look at uh, is is healthcare a human right? And mm-hmm. I was just wondering whether over your extensive work uh, in healthcare, uh, like how you've grappled with this question, and mm-hmm. and perhaps. Uh, you know, what are your thoughts on, 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 on this, this topic? Uh, I, I actually think that I heard him interviewed, uh, on a podcast, um, the author of the book that you're, you're mentioning. Um, yeah, I, I, I guess that I, I don't think of the rest of the world when I think about this question, I think about the United States and how we don't treat it as a right and how we are um, a very wealthy country and that we could certainly treat it as a right, afford to treat it as a right if it were viewed that way. So... I don't know if I exactly grapple with it, the question, because I hear in this country, I see it as a right. I mean, it would be wonderful if it were a right everywhere. And I suppose, theoretically, I believe it is a human right, but that, that, um, that way of phrasing it is a little confusing to me sometimes because uh, I'm not sure how it applies in the rest of the world. But here, certainly, I see it as a human right. Um, and I see it as a, a right that is denied people in a very wealthy country when they aren't wealthy, uh, when they... Uh, are from disenfranchised groups. So does that answer your question to an extent? Yeah, it does. It it sounds like you're very much on board with with healthcare as a right, especially because, um, you know, of of, of the the well-being of the U.S., right? It's a wealthy country Mm -hmm. and people should have uh, access to healthcare. I think you sort you you know you then you start picking through the weeds a little more and say okay if we treat it as a right like what does that look like yeah. so like right now you can you can go to the emergency room and get healthcare for acute uh, conditions but it's it's then how far 
Um, I think most or if all people are on board with keeping that, that you should you should have that uh, option, uh, mm-hmm. regardless of your socioeconomic status. But then from there, it's 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 how much uh, further do you go uh, in saying what is a right and what is not? Um, you and, know, and do, you, do you kind of, uh, you know, think about that as well in terms of well, how far you go with it? Well, um, I, I, I I, I don't know that I think about it that way. I, I think um, a number of years ago, I read an article in the New Yorker about, uh, I think it was Trenton or uh, one, one a town in New Jersey. I don't think it was Trenton, but it was in western New Jersey, uh, a town with a lot of poverty and they collected lots and lots of data about the use of healthcare in this city. And it uh, became very clear that most of the healthcare money was spent on about 6% of the people that lived in that city. You know, they went to the emergency room all the time. Uh, They had several chronic conditions each. They lived in poverty, et cetera. And the idea was that it would be quite expensive to provide them with, you know, um, healthcare navigation, support people, people who help them with their, uh, manage their biopsychosocial issues, uh, but that ultimately they felt that it would be worth it. And I believe they did uh, implement certain aspects of this program uh, because all the healthcare money was being spent on them. Uh, and when they got increased support, uh, their emergency room visits, which are, you know, super expensive emergency room visits, um, and their use of health care, because they had this basic support, people help them get primary care, people... Uh, I mean, the, the healthcare navigators or whatever they titled these people, uh, help them get primary care, help them get food, help them, you know, m- manage their mental health conditions. And I was really impressed by that. So I think, I mean, I haven't heard of anywhere else where they're doing exactly that, but a couple of years ago, um, I know that New York Hospital was looking at having support for people who constantly came with uh, chest pain and uh, rapid heartbeats that they determined was anxiety. And they were going to have a mental health program that provided a lot of support to these people with the goal of having them reduce emergency room visits, these expensive emergency room visits. I don't think it really ever got off the ground. I went to a bunch of uh, presentations on it, but you know, these are the sorts of things that I think about instead of thinking of the limits of healthcare as a right. Yeah, we'll get to back to some more accessibility stuff uh, later, but now I wanna ask you about uh your work in, in social work, especially mm-hmm. at HSS. So uh, can you just uh, 
articulate how a uh, relationship is initiated between a patient and a social worker and, and some of the reasons uh, that relationship comes to be? Right. Well, at HSS, the, uh, social workers have a variety of roles. And uh, the role that I would like to speak of is the role of the social workers working in the outpatient areas. Now, most of the social workers in my program work in the clinic areas. So they are working with people living in poverty, people you know, who have Medicaid or uh, uh, Medicare and Medicaid, people who are Medicaid eligible because of their disability or being over 65 and older. Um, so uh, these are people, that, uh, because of uh, their poverty, um, people living in poverty tend to have uh, more chronic health conditions, et cetera, uh, more limited access, uh, to healthcare, um, uh, don't utilize primary care as well as they should, or as well as would be helpful to them. So we, uh, the the social workers in the outpatient areas, uh, for the most part, get referrals from the physicians, either the surgeons or the rheumatologists or. Uh, sometimes the primary care uh, doctors that are seeing patients in preparation for surgery, we get referrals of those patients when certain things are the case. Sometimes it's a new diagnosis, uh, but often it is um, helping them prepare uh, for the road to surgery uh, and uh, or they need certain resources, mental health resources, concrete resources like applying for health insurance or uh, food, uh, food stamps, etc. So if they express a need, they're very happy to get a social work referral. But when they don't have the need, have a need that they identify, sometimes they get referred to the social worker anyway because they have a, a mental health issue, uh, particularly a substance use issue, which might interfere with them being able to proceed with surgery. So they're not that necessarily happy to see a social worker. So I think the initial... Uh, interaction is very, very different depending, uh, for very, very different reasons, let's put it that way. But I think what social workers offer patients is looking at things through the patient's eyes and having empathy for their situation and conveying that to the patient by some very simple things that sometimes don't happen in healthcare settings um, by some people who interact with patients. Hopefully at HSS, we do a pretty good job with this. Um, but what, the so what social workers are really good at is listening to the patient, hearing what they say, reflecting what they say so the patient knows that they've been heard, helping the patient um, identify 
the issue, laying out with the patient the plan so that the patient can understand it. One of the roles that our social workers have is uh, helping patients to understand uh, medical information. A lot of people, especially people living in poverty or for whom English isn't a first language or who have... um, uh, in uh, lower education levels, it, you know, many of those people have difficulty understanding health information. You know, I have difficulty sometimes understanding health information that's provided to me when I'm a patient. So we help patients understand that. So that we have many ways of connecting with the patient that allows the building of that trust so we can assist the patient. You know, I always say that our role in as social workers is to identify what the patient needs and to help the patient get what they need to improve the quality of their life because these are people with uh, medical uh, conditions. Yeah, and I can certainly see the listening piece being uh, vital, right, in the, the health setting because a common complaint is just that, you know, oftentimes doctor's appointments are kind of in and out. Exactly. And you just want to sort of sit down and, and breathe with somebody. Um, and I, I'm sure, uh, you know, some of the individuals as well don't necessarily have a, a you know, social support network uh, as least as vast as they would like. Um, so that's got to be huge for them, right. correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And we develop really good relationships with the physicians um, uh, who really rely on, on social work to help the patients uh, with things that Um, are not the focus of the visit for them because they do have a limited amount of time with the patients and, um, you know, really have another role. All right. You said that um, a lot of the patients or some some of the patients that you interact with uh, have Medicaid. Um, Can you just kind of paint us a picture of the landscape of Medicaid, including, you know, who are the insurers? Uh, you know, who are the patients uh, that this program is serving and some of the, you know, kind of important rules involved? Sure. So Medicaid is a, uh, a health insurance program for uh, people who, who have low incomes. The inco- income levels are quite low, um, very low. I mean, these are people with very, very limited income. And, um, you know, I, you know, I don't have the figure off the top of my head, but it's, you know, it's something like a little bit over, I think, $1,000 a month, that sort of thing, for a family, for a single person. And of course, if you're a single person without childcare responsibilities, if you are under, if you are under 65 and can work, you uh, will be asked to go to work for uh, the Medicaid, for Medicaid. So to, to receive Medicaid, but it is a, it's a program for people living in poverty. It, um, it, it covers, uh, you know, a a range of uh, healthcare uh, needs Many years ago, probably like 20 years ago or so, uh, prior to 20 years ago, it was a state-run program, still state 
state administered. Uh, some of the money comes from the federal government. But um, 20 years ago, people had Medicaid and you could go to any provider that took Medicaid and there are private providers that take Medicaid, but many, many people go to hospital systems who have clinics, which, which have clinics um, that take Medicaid and, um, and very often like at HSS, these are, these clinics are places where uh, in teaching hospitals, medical uh, trainees uh, in our hospital, residents and fellows, um, see the patients with supervision by the uh, attending physicians, the more experienced senior physicians. Um, so a little more than 20 years ago, you could go to any provider that took Medicaid, uh, but uh, cost cutting came into existence. And um, now you almost everybody, there are very few exemptions, uh, they need to uh, enroll in a managed Medicaid uh, plan. So basically you need to see uh, physicians within and use hospitals that are within your plan. And if you go outside of the plan, you need to get an out-of-network authorization, which is a, a complex process. Uh, you know, you have to request that with medical documentation from the, from the insurance company. Uh, and uh, plans are, uh, are uh, different in terms of uh, letting you go outside of the plan. Um, so, uh, very often we see among the HSS patients, we take several plans, but not all Medicaid plans. And, uh, you know, we get, uh, we see uh, patients who may have gone to several orthopedists and everyone's saying to them, you know, you really need to go to HSS. So they come into, or they want to come to HSS, but their plan doesn't allow them, they say, you know, go in network because HSS is too expensive for us. Um, so, uh, you know, that's an issue. Also, people very often have difficulty finding mental health treatment in their plan. The resources are, are often limited. Um, so, um, yeah, that's that's that can be challenging. So then, you know, you, you said a lot of the cost cutting occurred, what, 20 years ago? And then, right, fast forward to a decade ago, we had or, or so we had the Affordable yes. Care Act. Right. Did you feel like that? Uh, I know it's we'll, we'll, we'll talk in a sec about how it's kind of getting pushed yes. back at the moment. But did you feel like that filled in? Um, you know, the gap for a lot of people who were not making or who are making more than that, that $22,000 a year, or, or, or I guess, wait, no, you said $1,000 a month. So like that small amount of money, do you feel, did you feel like the, the ACA did a good job of kind of, uh, you know, closing the loop for everybody to get at least well, some health I, coverage? I think, yes. Uh, and, and I'll, let me start with Medicaid because one of the big successes of the ACA is the Medicaid expansion. So that meant that um, 
the in, income requirements went up, so more people were eligible for Medicaid. And that was done on a state-by-state state basis in the United States. And New York did participate in the expansion. So it, uh, many more people were eligible for Medicaid um, than were previously. Also, uh, there uh, was a plan um, in New York um, that was a little uh, uh, for people who made more than you would uh, be able to make for Medicaid eligibility. Um, and they would pay a small amount for the insurance. And actually, some of them, uh, because of the Medicaid expansion, even with, uh, over the, met the previous Medicaid limit, they didn't have Medicaid. They, uh, it was an, a, a more basic plan. I'm trying to think of the name of it. Um, okay, so that was the big success of ACA. Uh, people who had fairly limited income did okay with the ACA. Uh, people who were uninsured with moderate incomes very often had to pay uh, a fair amount of money. However, uh, they had insurance when before they may not have been able to get any insurance. And of course, the pre-existing, you know, it's being chipped away at, uh, but the pre-existing condition was, uh, uh, you know, you could have a pre-existing condition. Um, the restriction was thrown out. So, yes, I think there were many wonderful, wonderful things about the ACA. Uh, it's unfortunate that it got chipped away at rather than refined. So, yes, I do think it was a success, but it needed more work. And unfortunately, it didn't get that more work. It got, uh, you know more restrictive uh, in many, many places. So, but, but overall you felt like. Uh, a positive development. The, the ACA in general just, just made healthcare more accessible, right? Yes. It made healthcare more accessible, but it, it could have made it even more accessible. And it was disappointing that there were states that did not expand Medicaid, et cetera. Now, as it stands uh, in October of 2020, correct me if I'm wrong, because uh, my understanding of the current, uh, you know, legal picture is, is not the yes. best, but the individual mandate, um, which requires um, essentially everybody to have health care is, is going to the Supreme Court. So right. I can still use my, my health insurance from the ACA today, correct? Yes, correct. Correct. Okay. It's still the law of the land. I'm sure, you know... These are questions that you you probably get on daily, right? And and you know you're probably even checking the <laughs> updates yourself. So. Well, you know, I have one of the programs um, that I oversee is a program called uh, Voices Medicaid Managed Care Education, and it's a wonderful program uh, that helps HSS patients who are coming into our clinics. Um, to navigate health insurance. And uh, uh, the, um, the supervisor of that program uh, 
is the co-chair of our department's uh, Affordable Care Act committee. And one of the things we do is publicize it during open in the open enrollment period, et cetera. So, um, it, yeah, that's why I don't have some of these, these facts and figures at my uh, fingertips exactly, because that program deals with uh, that data on, on a daily basis. Patients ask about that, of course, all the time. Yeah. Can you talk about the experience of having to tell somebody they, they can't receive healthcare at your institution? I know you said yeah. that for, for, for some people, yeah. you know, they don't, you don't cover their Medicaid plan. So just kind of, you know, turning someone away at the door. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's gotta be heartbreaking. It is, it is really, really heartbreaking when, on the rare times that we can't figure something out. I mean, you know, one of the things that some patients do is they decide that they really want to come to HSS. So they wait till they can switch their plan and they switch it to a plan that HSS takes so that they can proceed with, uh, a, you know, a knee replacement or whatever it is they need. And the thing that's really challenging about that is, unfortunately, we see many, not just that we see, but there are so many people, particularly older adults, that have multiple chronic conditions. So they see a number of specialists on an ongoing basis. And what becomes really challenging for people is when they are in a plan and they, you know, need a specialist in this plan or they need a specialist in that plan, etc. So some people actually leave their plans so that they have lots of doctors in or a trusted uh, primary care doctor and join a plan that we accept uh, so they can proceed with surgery. And then afterward, they may go back to another plan or then they find new providers and a new primary care doctor. So it's, it's unfortunate that that's necessary. Um, so those are the kinds of things that people do. So most of the time, I would say that rather than saying you can't come here, what we say is, you know, we have a program that will help you figure out what your options are. And sometimes an option like that can be found. And sometimes we can even expedite the uh, transfer uh, to another plan because usually it takes some time. Um, if, if there's a really good medical reason for that. So, but there are times that, especially sometimes there are people out of state and that's a challenge. I mean, uh, and, uh, you know, HSS is number one in the country, right? So we get people with public insurance from out of state that want to come for our care. And, you know, they're, they're local, uh, their state Medicaid office needs to approve that. And sometimes that doesn't work out. When you think about the Upper East Side, there's just, like you just said, HSS is number one. Um, there, there's so much world-class healthcare, really throughout, I guess, New York City, right? Mm -hmm. are, do you feel that these institutions are, are like doing enough to make their services available to low-income populations? 
Um, well, that's a really tough question. I mean, I used to work at Mount Sinai and that was something, you know, everyone thought about there. Um, I think the challenge and, and Mount Sinai made quite a few improvements in that. I think the challenge is not so much the access to the care. It's equity in the care. So people who come in through clinics at hospitals uh, very often have to wait longer for an appointment uh, because the clinics tend to be very busy. A lot of people want to come in uh, for clinic care. HSS a few years ago, more than a few years ago, um, expanded. They have, uh, HSS has experimented with various ways of making uh, uh, appointments more easily accessible in our clinics, uh, adding certain screening clinics, for example, for knee and hip surgery. So you're not seeing the surgeon first, you're, you're, you're seeing someone who assesses, who's not going to be doing your surgery, but assesses the need for surgery, um, screening for people with back pain. Do they, do, are they going to a surgical clinic? Do they need to go to the surgical clinic? Um, or, uh, do they really just need PT? Um, so, I think we've tried some things and I think that, you know, HSS has really had very recently with all of the social justice issues related to racism in our country and the, uh, how that's been brought to a higher level of awareness uh, in, 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 in many places in this country, I think HSS has, uh, has an increased focus on uh, diversity and inclusion as it relates to healthcare. And there are quite a few initiatives uh, in progress um, to, to address equity in healthcare. And they're, you know, at the, in their infancy, uh, they're proceeding now, so I don't really want to uh, get too much into that. But it is an increased focus by HSS and probably lots of places. I mean, I, I attended um, a, a, a discussion session uh, run by uh, a physician at New York Hospital and they are talking about, you know, ways that they can uh, advocate for and support and raise the level of awareness of um, justice in healthcare. So, kind of expanding off that, how do you feel um, our healthcare system is currently? you know, racist and discriminates against people of color? Well, I think all you really need to do is look at the deaths from COVID. Uh, You know, African-Americans and some other populations of color uh, 
Latinx and Native, the Native American populations have much higher rates than white people, um, higher rates of infection, higher rates of death. Uh, and what this is based on are pre-existing conditions that uh, are a, a, a symptom of racism, poverty, uh, in, inadequate healthcare, uh, nutritional issues. This, the, you know, I, I think I've, I've read in the last couple of years about this theory that that and I, I think it's more than a theory uh, that um, uh, some of some chronic illnesses, high blood pressure, uh, heart disease, are uh, autoimmune diseases uh, are uh, really uh, caused by. Uh, or a huge factor in them is the stress of living in a racist society. Yeah, absolutely. I think, like you said, it's certainly not just in healthcare, but um, in the, for, the the nation's forefront yeah. of, of, of justice on in racial issues. The bigger when, when you just talk in a in a, 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 about mm-hmm. healthcare, right? Uh, the big culprits that are kind of identified can be like just sort of the government and the way we we set up our healthcare system, or insurance companies that are you know for mm-hmm. profit, or you know drug companies. Um, but just you know working in a smaller uh, setting, you're you're a lot closer to the to the healthcare providers. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think the physicians need to be kind of um, you know, pointed out as, as part of this, this healthcare uh, issue that we're having that, um, you know, healthcare isn't accessible if insurance isn't accepted. And, and, and it, it's definitely a certainly uh, a hard thing to uh, pinpoint, right? The cost of medical education exactly. is so high. There's, their, their services are, you know, are so many years of so much education and training, you know, they have, they have, skills that no other people have. Um, but at the same time, do we need to have a discussion of, of, you know, medical compensation and like whether insurance is accepted that, that physicians are, are part mm-hmm. of this problem too? Well, you know, it has to be a top down, a top down decision, uh, direction, a top down decision. It has to be a decision at the top and it has to be, uh, top-down direction, I think. And I do think that um, some of the cost needs to be borne by healthcare institutions and, and medical providers. Uh, that, um, I mean, I, you know, I, I feel for people who have paid that much in medical um, school loans and training loans too, you know. I, um, I, I know that it's tough, um, but you know, uh, doctors make a whole hell of a lot of money eventually. 
And I think that, um, you know, I, I see uh, some physicians that are uh, committed to, uh, you know, providing care for the poor on at least some um, some care. I, I, I mean, do I value that and think that that should be the case? Yeah, I do. And the, you know, uh, some of the physicians that work in our clinics are enormously dedicated and really care about patients and their struggles in living the lives that they live. Um, I have tremendous, tremendous uh, respect uh, for them. And, you know, we live in a capitalist society. I don't, it's, it's hard to, to doctors. I think most doctors really go into the field because they want to help people. They want to care for and cure people. I think they are idealistic. I mean, I, I, I think there are plenty of, plenty of people to, uh, you know, working on Wall Street that I, I feel, insurance companies that I feel, you know, bear perhaps greater responsibility. Um, but sure, you know, we, 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 I remember that there was one attending in, in particular that, you know, the head of a, of an area at HSS who really, you know, emphasized um, that uh, attending should, should uh, take um, patients, some patients with Medicaid and required it. And, and, um, you know, I thought that that was a, a really, a really, a really good thing to do. I kind of feel like something will, will, will play out in, on the medical education front, especially if we want to, you know, make it uh, more affordable. Like I was saying in the book, I read that the kind of the juxtaposition other nations around the world, you know, medic, medical education yes. is, is free or, or very little, but then the compensation isn't as much. So it's obviously no free lunch. Last thing I got for you. I know uh, I, I mentioned that you, you've done some work in, mm -hmm. in mental health in the past and you've, I know you're trained, uh, or at least familiar with dialectical oh, yeah. behavioral therapy. And for, uh, you know, some of our listeners who might not know, it's, it's, it's a mindfulness-based, uh, you know, basically course for acutely mentally ill people. And I was wondering um, if some of the, the mindfulness skills mm -hmm. in DBT, uh, is that some of the low-hanging fruit in our healthcare system that's being overlooked? For a lot of people who have you know, chronic conditions, mm -hmm. substance abuse problems, like these skills could perhaps be, be pretty useful um, if they were implemented, you know, in our mm -hmm. school systems, uh, in other social work settings, but often they're only reserved for acute mentally ill uh, patients. So I was wondering if, uh, you know, you see mindfulness and DBT um, and, and other things of the like you know, playing a role going forward in our healthcare system. Absolutely. In a, in a way. Um, and I think that it has been happening on, on um, 
more than it's certainly in the past. And by the way, uh, we have a mindfulness and uh, stress reduction, mindfulness-based and stress reduction uh, group that we do for our orthopedic patients, particularly those uh, living with pain and in our rheumatology patients. Uh, we have um, a... Uh, someone who is experienced in this area that teaches this class. And at the end, the social workers do a little, um, a little group discussion, which is intended to really uh, help uh, the patients in the group put it into practice in their lives. Like what, when are you going to use this? Uh, what time of day really make a plan and and this group is is uh, done on a regular basis it's been in existence for a period of time now and patients really find it useful also we have a program for older adults you i i don't know if you're aware uh our hospital um and actually all uh not-for-profit hospitals in, in New York State um, are required to do a community service plan in which um, uh, people with expertise as the hospital go out into the community and do programs. And uh, one of our community service plan projects, and there are a number of different departments that do community service plans at HSS. It's a huge initiative. Um, and we do several just in our uh, department, the Department of Social Work programs. But the one I want to mention is that um, our older adult program is going out into the community and teaching older adults different techniques to manage chronic pain, which many Americans, especially older Americans, are living with, back pain, arthritis, etc. And um, they are doing two modules, uh, one which is uh, mind-body focused, mindfulness focused, breathing techniques, uh, etc., visualizations. And the second one is using uh, CBT techniques uh, to cognitive behavioral techniques, um, you know, uh, changing thought patterns, etc., uh, to change your, to ultimately change your feelings and your uh, behavior to impact pain. Very cool, yeah. And I think, um, especially with what you're saying in pain management with the opioid crisis, mm -hmm. it seems like a, a good time to put more emphasis on, on mindfulness and, and coping right. with physical pain at least. So now it's time for a lightning round, a series of fast-paced questions that tell us more about you. I know you... Uh, worked in the 80s and perhaps 90s with some adolescents. I kind of consider the 80s a uh, golden age of pop culture. So I wanted to know what your favorite, what is your favorite 80s movie? Maybe <laughs> Drugstore Cowboy, who was a star of Drugstore, Matt, uh, Matt Dillon. And it was a story of a bunch of people 
uh, who uh, robbed uh, drugstores so they could get uh, opioids, basically. And it it really can it really humanized these people, and it really um, brought to life and a level of understanding of what it's like to be um, a drug addict, to be addicted. And it was also extremely entertaining and well acted. So you should see it, John. Nice. What is your go-to self-care technique? love a hot bath with Epsom salts. Um, and I like to do a lot of stretching and yoga. What is your favorite article of clothing? Love a nice dress. What is the most used app on your phone? Probably my podcast app. I walk everywhere. I walk to HSS and home every day, 35 minutes. So I listen to podcasts oh, wow. all the time. What is the one change you would make to healthcare? It's definitely universal healthcare. Don't have to think about that for a moment. Mavis Seahouse, thanks for joining the show. That concludes this episode of Esculapius. Till next time, I'm your host, John Neary. Be well.